as we touch or experience moments of genuine goodwill, it's not wanting anything back, it's not looking for a return. Just a moment of this generosity of the heart, what happens is that our hearts and minds become very soft and pliable and receptive. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Sometimes in our lives we have the good fortune to meet or connect with people who somehow radiate tremendous feelings of love, of kindness, of compassion, who seem to regard the whole world with that feeling or in that field of loving care. And somebody who I'm sure you're all familiar with who just comes to mind who so embodies this, somebody like the Dalai Lama, who just radiates kindness you know, in all his interactions with people. Some of our own teachers had that quality, and we've spoken over the years of this wonderful teacher from Calcutta, a woman named Deepama, who also embodied this feeling of metta, or loving-kindness. And also, <clears throat> just ordinary people in our lives who somehow have this capacity, have this ability. Often it's associated with a deep understanding of suffering. And when our hearts, in one way or another, either through life experience or through meditation practice, but often as we've learned how to open our hearts to the suffering in our own lives and lives of other people, when that's held with wisdom, it becomes the source, it becomes the field that's expressed with compassion and with love. Somebody like Deepama, it's like she was always blessing. That was, that was her main occupation. <laughs> so whoever she was with and wherever she was, and it was just blessing people and animals and airplanes. And, you know, be happy, stay up. <laughs> Somebody like the Dalai Lama, the few times that I've had the occasion to meet him, you know, and maybe others of you have noticed this as well. He just makes you feel like you are the most important person in the world. You know, his attention is so complete and so full and so unconditional. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful to be treated like that, you know, to be held in that way. 
when this feeling of love is there in this unconditioned form, it's not because of some position we have or some title or of who we are. That's not what's motivating the love of Deepama or the Dalai Lama. This love is coming simply because we're fellow human beings, fellow beings. There's one story which so illustrates this, and it's so uh, inspiring to me and such a good reminder. Uh, there was one conference His Holiness was out at in Arizona, big conference in one of the big hotels. It was going on for you know, several days. At the end of the conference, just as he was leaving, he requested that the whole staff of the hotel come down to the lobby and line up so that he could say goodbye to each person on the staff. That's quite an understanding. You know, to have that degree of care and consideration and connection with all beings because they're beings. And this, I feel, is the expression or the manifestation of loving-kindness, of metta. Now, metta, as most of you are familiar, is a word from the Pali language, the language of the Buddhist time, and it means loving-kindness or friendliness. And it refers to that basic quality or that basic feeling of generosity of the heart. It's an expression of the generous heart that is simply wishing well. Simply wishing or expressing goodwill to ourselves and others. And what's so unique about this feeling of metta is that it doesn't seek anything back. It's not seeking any self-benefit in it. We're not saying, when it's genuine, be happy, and in return, would you mind being this way for me? That's not metta. Metta, loving-kindness, is just the simplicity of the wish. It's an offering. Be happy. May I be happy, may you be happy, be well. Because sometimes expectations sneak in when we may not even hardly be aware of them. I had one experience many years ago. I was out visiting a friend in western Massachusetts who lived down a long dirt road, just a few houses on the road. And I was out for a walk. And by one of the houses, there was this little dog. And as I walked by, the dog started yapping and barking. And so I go into what I thought was my meta mode. Be happy, be happy, be happy. And it came over and bit me. (laughs) Which was a somewhat useful feedback. (laughs) That it really wasn't meta at all. (laughs) No, I really wasn't 
wishing that dog happiness. <laughs> I was basically saying, stay over there. And so we need to be just attentive. Uh, but when the moments are genuine, you know, when we really do have this, this wish for the well-being you know, of all, it's a very powerful and pure state because unlike some other qualities of mind, this genuine moment of metta, of loving care, is never associated with anything unwholesome. There's nothing unwholesome in the mind at that time. And that's why it's called, in the Buddhist psychology, one of the beautiful states, beautiful states of mind. As we touch or experience moments of genuine goodwill. It's not wanting anything back. It's not looking for a return. Just a moment of this generosity of the heart. What happens is that our hearts and minds become very soft and pliable and receptive. We feel a lot more tolerance more acceptance, we're less judgmental, less reactive about ourselves, about other people. We begin to be better humored about situations. The poet W.H. Auden summed up this aspect of metta wonderfully. He said, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. <laughs> when I saw that, it was, it was perfect. <laughs> it's because we soften, because we're better humored about our own flaws and the flaws of others. Metta also becomes a ground for wisdom because we're able to be with situations, we're able to be with our own minds and with other people's minds with less reactivity, with less judgment. And so it helps us see more clearly and more exactly what course of action is skillful and what course of action is unskillful. When we're simply reacting, you know, with anger or hatred or fear or whatever it may be, we're not seeing clearly. Our minds are clouded, and so we often make poor choices. This quality of patience not patience in terms of enduring something, but patience in terms of softening, spaciousness. It gives us, gives us the space to make wiser choices. And as we make wiser choices 
in our lives, the results that come back to us are more fruitful, are more beneficial, are more the cause of happiness. The happier we are, the more metta, love, and kindness we feel. And so it simply becomes a spiral upward of happiness and love and kindness. The Buddha talked about the virtues of loving kindness in one of the suttas. He said, one who actively develops loving kindness, mindfully and without limit, sees that their attachments wane and their bonds become worn thin. If one shows kindness with a clear mind, even once, for living creatures, by that one moment of kindness, one becomes wholesome. Having mercy in his or her heart for all creatures, a noble person brings forth abundant goodness. Now, very often we overlook the value and the depth of a single moment, in this case of metta, of loving-kindness. The Buddha talked of its tremendous power because when we connect with that feeling, with the possibility of living in the world from that place, that becomes the seed for many, many wholesome actions. And as the foundation for those wholesome actions, we reap the karmic fruits of that. So we live happier lives. Thich Nhat Hanh said so wonderfully, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. But it takes practice. We need to practice cultivating and developing this feeling. Because although we may recognize and understand the power of metta, the beauty of it, there are many times in our lives when we're not feeling it. Now, we'd like to be loving, but old habit patterns of reaction and judgment and behavior are very strong, and often they cloud and obscure the feeling of loving-kindness that's there. So what's happening at these times when we feel like we can't connect with the simplicity of these good wishes? Very often what's happening is that we confuse the feeling of metta, of loving-kindness, with what is called its near enemy. And that is a state of mind that looks like metta, that acts like metta, masquerades as metta, comes disguised as metta, but is not metta. And this near enemy of loving-kindness is the feeling of desire. They're very close to one another, but completely different. 
Metta is a gift. It's a simple wish. Be happy. Be well. Be free from suffering. Metta is an offering. Desire or wanting or longing is a taking back in. The energy is completely opposite. In metta, we're offering, and in desire, we're wanting. If we take the time to discriminate and look at our own experience, not consider this abstractly or theoretically, but really to look in our own experience and begin to distinguish these two feelings, we begin to see that they are very different with very different consequences. But when desire comes strong, when wanting is strong or longing is strong, it can be very confusing because it shares a lot of qualities with metta. When there's strong longing for someone or desire for someone, there's that same energy of wanting to come close. With both metta and desire, it can be very pleasurable and actually bring us a lot of pleasure. And so we confuse the two. We don't discriminate. But both in our meditation practice and in our lives, if we become aware of these two feelings and begin to examine, begin to look, it starts to become very, very clear. Here, we're on a metta retreat. Nothing to do all day long except generate loving wishes. But even this can be co-opted by the wanting mind. And I saw this happen so frequently in my metta practice. Can we be with each phrase as a simple wish, a simple expression of love? Or are we doing the phrases with an eye out for what we're getting from it? And I saw my mind do this so often as I was on long metta retreats. Are they doing the phrases, doing the phrases? Am I getting concentrated? Am I getting deeper? Am I getting more loving? (laughs) And all of a sudden, this metta practice became completely self-referential. You know, and the the people I was sending to were were completely incidental to what I might be getting out of the practice. Well, that's just more of the wanting mind, more of the desiring mind. And it actually sets us up for a lot of discouragement and frustration because we very rarely measure up or get what we're wanting or expecting. And so we're in a state of ongoing discouragement. And all of that can be cut through by recognizing that that state of mind is not matter, is not love. That state of mind is just form of wanting a desire, can I come back to the simplicity of a single phrase, be happy, 
But this is our practice. The, the wanting mind, the desiring mind is very sneaky. You know, so we have to be a little bit watchful you know, for when it arises because it is the near enemy of metta and it begins to weaken the genuine feeling for this counterfeit of it. The evaluating, judging mind in the practice is completely useless. And when I watched my mind do this over and over again, it reminded me of a time when I was quite young, maybe seven or eight years old, and planting my first garden. Actually, my first and last. (laughs) you know, I put all this, the seeds in the ground. And just as the carrots, you know, began to come up in the green, I got so excited, I kept pulling them up to see how they were doing. <laughs> well, obviously, it wasn't a very successful garden. How am I doing? How am I doing? How's it going? The meditation getting better. <laughs> we do the same thing in our practice. So we have to see that, let go of that, and come back just to the simplicity of each good wish. But that's what we're practicing. Inability, moment after moment, phrase after phrase, to connect with that place of goodwill. It's not only in meditation, of course, that these two states get mixed up. Of love and desire happens very much in the world of our interpersonal relationships, our intimate relationships. Just think for a moment or feel for a moment what it's like, perhaps thinking of a person you're close to, of what it's like to simply wish them well. Let's see if you can drop into that space for a moment. Just be happy. And now contrast that experience with the feeling, if you can conjure it up, either with that person or some other person, of a time when you've been deep in longing or wanting or desire. And you remember so far back? they're they're so different and we want to in our in our life in the world we want to pay attention to that difference not only on meditation retreat because in the world of our relationships these two feelings of metta and desire have very different consequences, hugely different consequences. Which feeling do you suppose conditions fear and disappointment and possessiveness and insecurity? Which of these two feelings do you think is the basis for all our projection about other people. 
And which of these two feelings is the cause and condition for greater peace in our lives, and contentment, and ease, and well-being? The two feelings which look alike and are very close, but actually go to completely different places for us. One place being an arena of tremendous difficulty and suffering, and the other being an arena of great joy, of great happiness. So to the degree that we can see clearly and begin to let go of the one and cultivate the other, we begin to tap into a place of happiness in our lives. But all of this we need to experience to investigate this for ourselves. Now, as with all the teachings of the Buddha, it's not enough just to hear it and have some opinion one way or other, either it makes sense or it doesn't make sense or whatever. It's not at all about belief. What the Buddha was doing was pointing out certain truths of our experience and then inviting us to look for ourselves, to see for ourselves. And that's the ongoing invitation at meditation retreats, the power of this clear seeing. One of the reasons we start with a benefactor is because it's easier to start recognizing a feeling of metta with a relationship that's very uncomplicated. And so it's good to choose a benefactor where there's not a lot of stuff. It's just somebody that when we think of them, we have a spontaneous, natural feeling of happiness, of gladness. Somebody that gladdens our hearts. Because even if we started doing metta with somebody that we have a tremendous love for, a very dear person. But very often with those very dear people, it's very or can be very complex. And in the beginning of the practice, it's helpful if we can recognize those moments when the metta is simple, it's pure, it's genuine, It's the simple wish for someone to be happy. Because the more clearly we recognize it and the distinctiveness of it, the easier it is to access that feeling again and again. It's as if we recognize that in ourselves. Oh yes, this is really a feeling of loving kindness. We recognize it It starts to become our friend. It becomes our home. And so instead of being something we're doing, practicing metta, it becomes the place we're living. We're just resting in that basic place of goodwill. One of the things that gives love this pure kind of loving-kindness, such power, is its inclusiveness. 
It has the capacity to embrace all beings, unlike the feeling of desire. How many people can you desire? One, two, five, ten? And there's a limit. There's nobody, I think, who has desire for all beings. No, because <laughs> it would be a hell realm. Desire, the wanting mind, does not have the capacity to embrace all. And yet it's precisely the simplicity and the openness and the generous generosity of metta. Yes, may all beings be happy, all beings without exception. That's a wonderful capability. I'd like to read to you uh, just a little bit of the Buddha's teaching on loving-kindness, because it expresses so well this all-inclusive nature of it. So this is, this is really his instruction to us in practicing metta, in practicing loving-kindness. He said that in this practice, this is our wish. May all living things be happy and at their ease. May they be joyous and live in safety. All beings, whether weak or strong, omitting none, in high, middle, or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far away, born or yet to be born, may all beings be happy and at their ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or ill will wish to harm another. Even as a mother watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living beings, radiating friendliness over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate a boundless goodwill toward the entire world, free from ill will or enmity. Whether standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as long as one is awake, one should be resolved in this mindfulness. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. nice way to abide. And the beauty of this retreat, and it's what I love about metta retreats, it's like this is our job for a week. You know, we have nothing else to do, no other responsibilities, except to sit and practice sending out loving wishes, starting with ourselves, and then we'll work through all the categories, to all beings everywhere, without exception, without limit, without boundary. It's a fantastic endeavor. I mean, if more people were doing this in the world, the world would be a very different place. 
And unlike desire, this feeling of metta, this feeling of goodwill, does not easily turn into its opposite. It doesn't easily turn into ill will or jealousy. How often are we filled with desire and filled with what we call love for someone? As long as things stay a certain way and then conditions change and those feelings can change intensely to their very opposite. And somebody we were feeling so much longing for and so much desire for, the situation might change and all of a sudden we're filled with rage or ill will or jealousy, whatever it may be. Metta does not change so easily precisely because it is not dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on a person being a certain way or doing a certain thing. It's a simple offering of our hearts, be happy, be free of suffering. There's a stability to it as we practice this in our lives. This becomes the ground of our way of being. Not that we never lose it, but the more we practice it, it becomes easier and easier to come back to it. Sometimes people have a fear of metta in a certain way. Now this sometimes expressed, well, if I get too loving, I'm going to lose all my discriminating wisdom about what people are doing and right and wrong action and the appropriate kind of response, I'll become a little bit stupid. But it's interesting to see it's exactly the opposite of what really happens. That it is the anger, it is the judgment, it is the reactivity of our minds which clouds our judgment, which prevents us seeing things clearly. And this feeling of metta, of love, does not in any way hinder appropriate action, appropriate responsiveness. I wanted to read a couple of things from Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the woman who's the leader of the democracy movement in Burma. I don't know how familiar you are with the politics of Burma, now called Myanmar these days, but it's terrible. It's a horribly repressive government. Lots of people being thrown in jail and tortured and forced labor. and It's it's very, very bad there. She's this most amazing woman for, she was under house arrest for six years or longer. Uh, And then for a brief time, she was able to move around a little bit and speak publicly. And again now, not under official house arrest, but, but cannot in fact leave. It's quite amazing the energy with which she is holding really the hopes of that whole country. I'll just 
read a couple of things. One of the one of the aspects of her being and her life that's really inspiring to me is that it's very down to earth. She's not talking theoretically at all. This is a book of interviews uh, with her and some of her colleagues. It's called Voice of Hope, done by a friend of ours, uh, Alan Clements. So he was asking, Daw Sue, a simple question, what does love mean to you? And she answered, I don't really think of love in an abstract way. When I first think of metta, I feel it within our movement, especially between my colleagues and myself. We work like a family. We are not just colleagues. We have a real concern and affection for each other, which is the basis of our relationships. I think this may have a lot to do with the fact that we have to work under such difficult conditions. It's only metta that is strong enough to keep together people who face such repression and who are in danger of being dragged away to prison at any moment. And the longer we work together, the greater our bond of metta grows. From there, these ties of friendship and affection have spread outward to include the families of colleagues. From there, it spreads further, and with it, the feeling of family grows. A family with a love of justice, a love of freedom, a love of peace and equality. And then she was asked, well, how are you able to deal? Or how are you able to feel affection towards tyrants, toward the people who are so oppressive in the cause of so much suffering? It just happens. I never imagine scenes where I'm oppressing them or getting my own back or giving them a nasty time and making them miserable. Such thoughts give me no satisfaction, nor are they images that I see as particularly pleasant and desirable. What I do imagine is a time when all this animosity has been washed away and we can be friends. That's an amazing way to hold a situation, a very real situation of tremendous suffering. It's exactly the feeling of metta which is such a source of strength. There's one other part in the book at the very end. There's a series of interviews with some of her colleagues who spent a lot of time in jail, uh, the very brutal conditions. And one of them was asked, you know, aren't you afraid of being put back in jail? And he sort of left, you know, with Alan. He said, you don't get it. I'm not afraid of being put back in jail. My freedom is today, not tomorrow. This whole way of being was about staying free in the moment, free of fear, free of hatred. That's was wonderful. It's wonderful to see the power that metta can give us in very adverse circumstances.
what I think is very important here is to realize that even though we might recognize desire and wanting and longing as being the near enemy of metta and not really the same thing at all and going to very different places, it's not that we sit down, do a few metta phrases, and all our desires fall away. So be watchful of expectations. said that the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, spent many years doing metta practice. In fact, sometimes spent whole lifetimes cultivating this quality. And so we want to be patient with ourselves. How can we do it? How do we apply the the meditation tools to the nurturing of this seed, the nurturing of this feeling. A very helpful addition to the actual metaphrases at the beginning of a sitting is asking for and extending forgiveness. Did someone mention that this afternoon? It's a very helpful way of opening the heart, of clearing the heart. So, for example, at the beginning of your sitting, you might breathe through the heart for a few moments. And then in a very open way, if I have hurt or harmed anyone in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, I ask forgiveness. And I freely forgive anyone who may have hurt or harmed me. Purifying, cleansing. From that place, then becomes easier to generate feelings of goodwill. Pay attention as you're doing the meditation to the meaning of the phrases, because sometimes we get into a mechanical run. I'd be safe, I'd be happy, healthy, I'd live with ease. And back to the first one again. (laughs) And we're not even paying attention, really, to the fullness and the richness of each of those wishes. May I be safe. Let that sit for a moment and percolate. What does safety mean? It means safe from outer danger, safe from harm. It also means safe from inner harm, safe from the force of the defilements in the mind, like hatred, like fear, like anger. And so as we sit with the phrase, may I be safe, let the word be there for a moment. Intuit, feel, let it spread. May I be happy. That's a nice one to contemplate. What does it mean to be happy? 
lots of kinds of happiness. There's the happiness of sense pleasures. Well, that's a kind of happiness. There's the happiness of the still mind, the concentrated mind. There's the happiness of loving feelings. There's the happiness of freedom. When we say, may I be happy, may you be happy, can we take it all in? Can we really begin to feel the possibilities for happiness in our lives, in the lives of other people, and our wish to contain it all? May I be healthy, strong, energetic, free of pain. It's a wish. Sometimes we are in that state, sometimes we're not. When we're not even the wish, may I be healthy, is a wish of care, the wish of kindness. May I live with ease. This is an important summation because this implies the possibility of living with, with ease in the face of any circumstances. Sometimes there's pain, sometimes there's difficulty. Can we live with ease in all of those vicissitudes? Asking forgiveness, extending forgiveness, understanding and concentrating on the meaning of the words, Understanding that metta is also a concentration practice as well as a practice developing love. We're actually strengthening our samadhi. If we recognize this, it's a tremendous help because often as we do the phrases, we're not feeling a tremendous rush of love. Now, were you in bliss all day? Probably not. (laughs) But if we understand that this meditation is not only about the developing of that loving feeling, but also the strengthening of concentration, then every time we come back to a phrase, even if we come back a thousand times in an hour, every time we come back, we're strengthening that aspect. And the stronger the concentration, the deeper access, access it gives us to the feeling of metta. As with any concentration practice, it's important to get the balance of right effort. You know, because we can be holding on, we can be making too much effort, and we lose the rhythm. We can be making not enough effort, and the mind just spaces out and wanders. Pay attention to how you're relating to each phrase that you're expressing. Just look at the relationship. Is it too tight? Is it too loose? Are you right there in a stable way? There was a time in my practice that was so misguided. I had this perverse understanding of right effort. This was the very first, one of the first times I was doing metta. I had the idea that 
the practice would develop, the, the more time I could say the phrases in an hour. <laughs> phrases per hour, as that number went up, that somehow... So I was sitting just kind of racing through the phrase. It was totally ridiculous. It took a little time to... Too much time to, to realize this is not what it's about. You know, it was a completely misguided effort. It's about settling back very simply, but in a very connected way with each single phrase, just one at a time, even to think or to frame your practice to do the set of four. Because sometimes we start thinking like that. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really be, be mindful and concentrated for these four phrases. That's too much. It's one phrase at a time. Take your time with it. Be full. Concentrate on the meaning. Know what it's about. And then the next. And then the next. And we forget and we wander and we, all sorts of hindrances come but we simply come back to the simplicity of the single phrase. We do that again and again, and the whole mind-body settle. Reflect on the quality of right effort. Metta also comes from feelings of gratitude. And in a very interesting comment, the Buddha once said that gratitude is one of the rarest feelings in this world. In a way, is a sad commentary. So as we're doing the practice, especially as you think of a benefactor or good friends, it's helpful to reflect, to think about the good things that they have done for us. You know, to really let that in and let the let that feeling of gratitude be there, because then metta flows very spontaneously when we allow for the gratitude. Metta comes when we reflect on the good qualities in ourselves and other people. You know, for most of us, our minds are so judgmental. And we seem to have a comment, often negative, about everyone, about ourselves, about other people. And in metta, what we're doing is beginning to change that conditioning. So instead of focusing on what we see is wrong with people, of course, we have long lists, often. Instead of focusing in that way, we begin to focus on the good qualities of people. A very helpful change of habit. And it's amazing how quickly we can change our inner feeling when we do this. There was one time I was just at home and something was coming to mind about a friend. It was irritating me, something they had done, and I was getting more upset and angry and getting lost in the story of all that. And then I saw what was happening, that I was getting more and more uptight and upset. 
And I just started doing metta. I started thinking of this person and thinking of his one or two good qualities <laughs> amongst all the others. <laughs> but it was amazing. It was, like, it was like changing the channel. You know, instead of the irritated, angry, ill-will channel, I just flipped, clicked the switch. It's a much nicer channel to be in and watching. But we have to be mindful enough to know that we're caught in the other way and then just to switch back. Keep in mind that the practice of metta is a gradual transformation of how we are. And it does transform us, but it requires a great deal of patience. And I'm sure during this week, you'll go and already today, you know, go through many, many ups and downs where you're feeling at ease and good and it's flowing. And at times when you're feeling discouraged and depressed and miserable, and up and down and up and down, can you be patient with it? And all of us who have done this practice intensively, as you're doing now, have gone through exactly the same things. At one point in my practice in Burma, I was doing metta for quite a while, for a couple of months. In the first few weeks of the practice, I was getting these very strong head pressures, very uncomfortable. And I went to... Upandita, our teacher, reporting it. And all he said was, oh, that's rapture. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> it didn't feel like rapture at all. It felt very uncomfortable. But slowly, I just was patient and kept doing it and doing it. And then that dispersed and the energy started flowing more easily. And be patient. You know, this was just the first day of practice. It will all unfold from the great simplicity and purity of each loving wish. I'd just like to close with some lines of a poem about happiness. Because in the end, as we cultivate the metta and the loving feelings more and more, and it does become our home increasingly, we start to live in a much happier way. It's from the Palestinian poet, Naomi Shihab Nye. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible, you take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. So we can do the loving kindness, the metta practice in just that way, not claiming it as one's own, we're trying to cling to a feeling. We're just practicing. 
no place large enough to hold all of the loving feelings. You raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you.